0: I'm dermatologist and hair specialist Dr. Jeff Donovan, and I'd like to welcome you to the Evidence Based Hair Podcast. A big welcome back to the Evidence Based Hair Podcast, season four, episode number four. The Evidence-Based Hair Podcast was created for hair loss practitioners. It was created for practitioners around the world who care for people with hair loss. Each week, I'll review a handful of different studies that are changing how we think about hair loss. I'll introduce them to you, I'll help you make sense of them, and I'll give you my thoughts on how a given study might just change how we diagnose or treat hair loss. These are studies in androgenetic hair loss alopecia areata telogen effluvium traction alopecia scarring alopecia the evidence-based hair podcast was produced by the donovan hair academy this podcast was created for all those who help all those with hair loss it was created for educational purposes and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice the second monday of each month is dedicated to a variety of studies, including those in Traction alopecia, Telogen effluvium, Tinea capitis, Trichotillomania. And today it's my great pleasure to review with you eight studies. And for those of you who want a brief five to ten minute overview, a mini podcast within our longer podcast, well, I'll give that to you now. And for those of you who want a bit more detail about all these studies, to figure out how to incorporate all this new information into your practice, well, you and I can dive into these studies together. Thanks for joining me on this incredible journey. So we'll begin, then, by a study by Michelini and colleagues in the JEADV looking at the histology of COVID-associated telogen effluvium. We all know that COVID-19 can cause telogen effluvium, as well as potentially other hair loss issues, including alopecia areata. But COVID-associated telogen effluvium is one of the most common types of hair loss that the SARS-CoV-2 virus can bring. And a very fascinating study by Michelini and colleagues suggests that COVID-associated telogen effluvium can be associated with thickening of nerves as well as dermal fibrosis. And the reason this is so important is because it raises the possibility that some of the hair loss in COVID-19-associated hair loss could at least theoretically be permanent or difficult to revive in some cases. So we'll take a look at this. This is a new concept, this concept of thickened nerves and sclerosis and fibrosis happening within the dermis. We'll take a look at this study of four patients. We'll take a look at a nice study from Saudi Arabia looking at the chances of shedding after COVID vaccines. And this study suggested that 28% of patients had shedding after COVID vaccination. I think this is important. We know that vaccines and COVID-19 can cause shedding. We don't really have good numbers on the risk of shedding after vaccines. But this study suggests that Maybe it's not as low as we sometimes think it is. So we'll take a look at this study together. Then we'll take a look at a study from Turkey looking at, again, COVID-associated hair loss. And a study which shows that nine months after COVID-19 infection, about 23% of patients are still reporting hair loss. And so I think we've come to believe that COVID-19 can sometimes cause hair loss. Not always. But it runs its course. Five to six months, it's kind of done. And if someone has hair loss after a year, you look for something else. I had hair loss in 2021, and now it's 2022. Well, it's not due to COVID. That's way too long for this to still be covid That's the way we think now, and I think that this study teaches us that, hang on, maybe some patients are still experiencing some sequelae of COVID-19, even at nine months. And I think together with the Michelini study, which I'll review, looking at this dermal fibrosis and thickened nerves, maybe, just maybe, there are some long-term consequences of COVID-related infection. We know the virus enters the skin. We know the virus enters hair follicles. And maybe we just need to hit the pause button for a minute and consider the possibility that if you had COVID in June 2022, that maybe in June 2023, you can still be experiencing some consequences of that COVID infection. We're not there yet to rule that out. And so I think we need to keep that on the list. There are a lot of unusual hair loss phenomenon going on around the world that don't seem to tie in perfectly well with what we think. And I absolutely do believe that some of this may be related to COVID-19 and things that we don't understand. In other words, I think the ability to neatly package hair loss presentations into Neat little bundles of, you have androgenetic hair loss, telogen effluvium. You have androgenetic hair loss, alopecia areata. You have seborrheic dermatitis, telogen effluvium. My personal view is our ability to package is a little bit tougher right now. And I think that's due to COVID-19. And so we'll take a look at these concepts. I think this is really important. COVID's still new to the world. And I think we have to be humble to the fact that we don't understand everything about it. and so. Let's keep an open mind. Another study we'll look at addresses some trichoscopy findings of COVID infection. You know, generally speaking, we think of the telogen effluvium that COVID causes as having trichoscopic findings of empty follicles, decreased density, short regrowing hairs. It's the same findings of a telogen effluvium from dieting or low iron or thyroid problems. Well, this study by Saber and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology addresses the possibility that scalp capillarectasia or dilated blood vessels, could be a feature of COVID-19. And these are really types of arborizing blood vessels seen on trichoscopy. And we'll take a look at this concept. I think it's helpful. Saber and colleagues point out that if you think your patient doesn't have seborrheic dermatitis, hasn't had seborrheic dermatitis before, which is a common cause of dilated blood vessels, then maybe, just maybe, they've had COVID-19. So we'll take a look at this concept. Then we'll take a look at two studies looking at telogen effluvium from calcitonin gene-related peptide monoclonal antibodies. I think these are fascinating studies. These CGRP antibodies came to the world in 2018 And there's a number of them on the market now which are helping patients with migraine headaches, and they are changing lives of patients with migraine headaches. You may know that many patients with migraine headaches start with triptans, but if triptans are ineffective or migraines are very problematic, some patients are starting this new class of medications called CGRP monoclonal antibodies and other CGRP inhibitories medications as well. And Amovig was one of the first drugs marketed in 2018. And there's others. But Ruiz and colleagues discussed two patients with telogen effluvium after a CGRP monoclonal antibody. And they discuss what happened when the drug was changed to another CGRP monoclonal antibody. Patients still had shedding. And then they look at the FDA adverse event reporting system for all the reports of cgrp monoclonal antibody associated hair loss and we'll take a look at that together and we'll see that this class of drugs can rarely cause hair loss and i think we need to be aware of it another study by evers and wald discussed telogen effluvium in six patients out of 279 that were treated with this cgrp Monoclonal antibodies. So that's 2.2% of patients had shedding. And I'll, I'll walk you through the Evers and Wald study. Patients had shedding with one monoclonal antibody, went to another monoclonal antibody. Six of the patients had shedding, and when they changed, four of them finally had the shedding shut off, but two didn't. One switched yet again. And finally had the shedding shut off after the third monoclonal antibody. And one stopped. They they just stopped after the second. Didn't go on. So we'll take a look at that study. Then we'll take a look at low-dose oral minoxidil and its use in traction alopecia. A nice study by Awad and colleagues. Looking at 58 patients, 75% of them were white, 10% black with traction alopecia and the use of oral minoxidil starting at 0.75 milligrams and moving up to 2.5 milligrams mean dose, so fairly high doses for women, but the ability of low-dose oral minoxidil to help patients with traction alopecia. And finally, we'll look at a nice study looking at a database describing pediatric patients with tinea capitis, And we'll see that many patients had inadequate testing. Only about 20% of children in this large database had adequate testing. And only 60% of patients with tinea capitis in this database had oral antifungal treatments for their tinea capitis. Oral antifungal treatments are the mainstay of treatment for tinea capitis. Topicals should not be used, but yet topicals were used in a large percentage of patients. And so we'll take a look at these studies together. The references for all of these are in the show notes that accompany this episode. So let's begin then by Michelini and colleagues. A study in the JEADV, March 2023, titled Telogen Effluvium in SARS-CoV-2 Infection Histological Aspects. A fascinating study, a small study, but a fascinating study that I think we should all know about. The point of this paper is to point out that telogen effluvium after COVID-19 may show dermal fibrosis and thickened nerve trunks. So hair loss is a recognized sequelae of covid infection. Many patients develop telogen effluvium, and as we've spoken about before, it can occur anywhere from a few weeks after COVID infection to up to a few months after COVID infection. And so the author set out to better understand the features of COVID-associated telogen effluvium. And so they evaluated four female patients between 53 and 62 years of age, who presented with acute hair loss starting one to three months after their COVID infection. The pull test was positive. Trichoscopy showed the typical features that we all know is uh, descriptive of telogen effluvium, including empty hair follicles on trichoscopy, single hair follicular units, regrowing hairs, and the trichogram when it was plucked from the parietal area showed a telogen rate higher than 20%. But what did biopsies show? Well, biopsies showed a shift in the proportion of telogen hairs. Normally there's about 10% to 15% telogen hairs. Here there was 50% telogen hairs on biopsies. There was no inflammation, but there was a wide variety of histological features ranging from dystrophic hairs to bulb atrophy to fibrosis. And the authors also described a thickening of nerve trunks or hypertrophy of nerve endings, which they call dermal hypernery. And that was a feature of all four of these patients. And so these are new concepts and biopsies of telogen effluvium from COVID patients. Dermal hypernery has been defined as the presence of an increased number of hypertrophic myelated and non-myelated nerve fibers in the dermis they're exaggerated in size and it affects these sensory c fibers and we see this phenomenon in pain syndromes like post neuralgia and the reason the authors were so interested in this dermal hypernery is we know that many patients with covid associated hair loss have bizarre scalp symptoms we call this trichodynia but we know trichodynia is very much a feature of COVID-19 hair loss. Patients get burning and tingling and pain. And this has been studied in the past, but here the authors report that this may be due to these thickened nerve fibers. It's not clear why this is occurring, but of course, in many of these COVID-related phenomenon, the proposal is given that there's some cytokine storm the release of massive numbers of cytokines that trigger fibrosis. And the reason the authors are pointing this out to us is that the concern here is that this germal fibrosis, or sclerohyalinosis could potentially cause a reduction in hair density, and that could be permanent. Of course, more studies are needed in this, but these are newly described phenomena which suggest at least the possibility that some of this might not be reversible. So we need more study to better understand what happens to these thickened nerves over time, what happens to this dermal fibrosis, bulb atrophy, what happens to all of these histological features over time. Is COVID-19-related hair loss completely regrowable? Well, I think for three years, most of us have been of the mindset that it should be. You get dengue virus, you get shedding you get regrowth. You have hair loss from influenza, you get shedding, you get regrowth. But I think the rules might be a little bit different for COVID-19. We don't know yet, but I think we have to have an open mind that it may not be the same as some other viral infections or other infection models that we have. And so I think this is a really important study. It's a small study, just four patients, but I don't think we fully understand the consequences of COVID-19-related hair loss yet. So we move now to a study by Al Harbi and colleagues in the Journal of Family Medicine and Primary Care titled Telogen Effluvium After COVID-19 Vaccination Among Public in Saudi Arabia. So Dr. Al Harbi set out to estimate the prevalence of telogen effluvium in individuals who received COVID vaccination. And so it was a cross-sectional study in the month of July 2021, adults who received one dose of a COVID-19 vaccination were asked to fill out a questionnaire. And There was a few different vaccines that were in this study. The majority were female. The most common age group was 21 to 30, and that's where about half of patients fit in. About two-thirds of patients reported hair loss after vaccination. But this was directly tied into the vaccine, or at least it was thought to be directly related to the vaccine, in 27.6% of patients. So just over one quarter. So it highlights that perhaps vaccines may trigger some type of hair loss in about a quarter of patients, at least in this study from Saudi Arabia. I think this is really important. I don't think we have a good grasp on the proportion of patients that have shedding after vaccination i think we know what occurs but i don't think we have a real good number that we can quote and many of us have tended to be of the belief that it's low but i think this study suggests that well it might not be low that it could be 27 percent, and it could be even higher there's a proportion of patients in this study that It couldn't actually be determined what actually was the reason for shedding. But I think this is really important. Vaccines for COVID will be with us forever. And many of these vaccines may be administered yearly, depending on the country and depending on what the final decisions on many countries are about vaccination policies. But I think it's really important that we be able to provide patients with counseling on what is the risk of shedding. And this study suggests to us that, well, it could be a quarter of patients get some shedding. And again, we tend to think that that shedding is mild for most, and we tend to think that shedding is temporary. But again, it's really important to recognize that in patients with certain types of hair loss, especially androgenetic hair loss, that repeated cycles of shedding sometimes have the potential to push androgenetic hair loss forward. And so we need to be aware of this as as we counsel patients about what makes sense for them in their lives. We take a look at another study from Turkey titled The Evaluation of Long Coronavirus Disease Symptoms at Ninth Month from Hospital in Turkey. So this was a nice study which looked at What symptoms are patients experiencing nine months after their COVID infection? And so they performed a cross-sectional study in November 2020 of COVID-19 patients, and they contacted them nine months after their infection. And there were 329 patients in this study, Average age was 48.9 years. 51.7% of patients were female. And 79% of patients were still having one symptom at month number nine. These included weakness, fatigue, forgetfulness, sleep disturbances, joint pains. But hair loss was present in 23.4% of patients at month nine. So 23% of patients, almost a quarter of patients, were still having hair loss at month Number nine, and this was more common in women than in men. So I think this is an important study because again, it reminds us that some symptoms don't resolve completely. And in this study, a quarter of patients were still having hair loss concerns. This study is important for us to be aware of. It was conducted in 2020, so these patients would not have been vaccinated. And so we really need to understand how. Vaccinated and non-vaccinated patients differ in terms of chronic hair loss issues after COVID-19. And we need to understand more about how new virus subtypes like Omicron differ from the earlier versions of the virus in 2020 and 2021. It's possible that hair loss is less common now with Omicron. It is possible that long-term hair loss-related symptoms are less common in vaccinated individuals than non-vaccinated. I don't think we fully understand this yet, but this is important information for further studies. The main message of these studies are that I don't think we're there yet to package coronavirus-related hair loss in a descriptive sentence that we understand well. We would like to be able to say that patients develop hair loss starting month one to three. They shed for two or three months. Some patients experience trichodynia or hair pain, and then it resolves, and then the hair grows back. That's what we believe. I don't think we're there yet. I think we have studies, including Michelinian colleagues, suggesting that there's this thickened nerve fibers and sclerohyalinosis. There's fibrosis. There's atrophy of bulbs. We have other studies suggesting that a quarter of patients are experiencing hair loss at month number nine. So I don't think we're there yet to explain COVID-related hair loss in one sentence. We know that some patients are experiencing alopecia areata after COVID infection. We know that uh, other issues may be flared by COVID infection. So I think we have to study it more, and I think these studies are a good reminder that we don't fully understand this yet, and it may not be applicable to bring on the models that we have of dengue virus, influenza, etc., etc., to explain COVID-related hair loss. So more studies are needed, especially long-term studies. So we move on now to a study by Saber and colleagues in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology titled Skelp Capillar as a trichoscopic sign of COVID-19-associated telogen effluvium. Capillar ectasia means dilation of these delicate capillaries in the skin. So when one looks at the published medical literature, it's possible to see that COVID-associated telogen effluvium has several trichoscopic signs, including decreased hair density, empty follicles, and short regrowing hair. Hairs. And for the most part, these are identical trichoscopic features to any cause of acute telogen effluvium. You would expect the trichoscopy of COVID-associated telogen effluvium to match pretty closely telogen effluvium from low iron, telogen effluvium from weight loss, telogen effluvium from medications. But are there different trichoscopic findings in COVID-19-associated hair loss? Well, a study in 2021 by Liv and colleagues reported this concept of ectasia in COVID-associated telogen effluvium. And in that particular study, the authors described a 38-year-old female with telogen effluvium happening after COVID-19, and when trichoscopy was performed, a dandruff-like presentation was described, and there was dilation of these tiny capillaries, so there was redness to the scalp. The hairs that came out of the scalp were very typical telogen hairs. And trichoscopy included ectasia, dandruff, inflammation, and so they proposed that there were many features of covid associated telogen effluvium that are important for us to be aware of and so saber and colleagues in 2023 built on that concept this was a group from iran which felt that there's something really important about these dilated blood vessels and they proposed that scalp ectasia is a trichoscopic features for a for us all to study more And they point out, rightly so, in their paper that it's possible for some of these small arborizing blood vessels to be present in seborrheic dermatitis. But if you have a patient with telogen effluvium and you feel that there's not a lot of great features of seborrheic dermatitis, then you may want to consider a prior COVID infection. And remember, many patients with covid have asymptomatic presentation, so they don't know they've ever had COVID-19. And so if you know a patient's scalp well and you know that arborizing blood vessels or capillary ectasia was not a feature of their scalp before and now they have concerns about hair loss and they have all these arborizing little blood vessels that maybe, just maybe, they've had COVID-19. And so the authors remind us that blood vessel dilation is common in many organs after COVID-19 infection. The lung, the liver, the kidney, the retina. And they highlight this study to remind us to be aware of scalp ectasia or arborizing blood vessels and to stimulate more research in this particular area. I think this is interesting. I think dilated blood vessels are poorly studied and it's somewhat a non-specific feature. And when you look at enough scalps, you see dilated blood vessels from time to time. You see scale. But I think it is an important subject for us to be aware of, and I think it certainly warrants additional study. It could be the dilated blood vessels are linked to COVID, and it could be that they're linked to the trichodynia that patients experience. Many patients with COVID-19 have these unusual symptoms like burning and tingling and buzzing. And I'd like to remind you about a study in 2002 by Willeman and colleagues titled Hair Pain, Trichodynia, Frequency and Relationship to Hair Loss and Patient Gender, published in Dermatology. And that was a study by Willeman and Trube, And in that study, Willemann and Trube argue that dilated blood vessels in the scalp are associated with trichodynia. And so certainly one wonders whether these dilated blood vessels in the setting of COVID-19 are linked in some manner to the trichodynia that patients experience. And so not uncommonly when I see patients with trichodynia and scalp dysesthesias and challenging scalp symptoms, burning and tingling and pain, these dilated blood vessels are present. And it can be a helpful trichoscopic sign to better understand trichodynia and dysesthesia. I think this is a nice study. We need more studies looking at the dilated blood vessels on the scalp in COVID patients. So we'll leave telogen effluvium from COVID-19 and turn now to telogen effluvium related to a group of medications known as CGRP monoclonal antibodies a study by Ruiz and colleagues. These CGRP monoclonal antibodies are new medications which are helping patients with migraine. You're well aware that migraines can be extremely disabling for people. Migraines are prevalent in many countries across the world. An estimate suggests in North America that one in five women are affected by migraines, and one in 15 men are affected by migraines, and that data is similar across many countries. The current model for understanding the pathophysiology of migraines suggests that neurons on dural blood vessels trigger the release of plasma proteins and vasoactive substances like calcitonin gene related peptide, CGRP, as well as substance P. And these vasoactive factors trigger vasodilation, and that gives neurogenic inflammation and pain that's experienced as headache. And calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, is thought to play a key role in migraines. CGRP levels increase in serum between attacks of both episodic and chronic migraines, and these increased levels reverse when treatments are administered with standard first-line treatments like the triptans and it's well known that when you inject cgrp you trigger headaches mimicking typical migraines and what's been so revolutionary in the world is that these new medications these cgrp inhibitors block the effects of cgrp and block and prevent migraine headaches in many patients and cgrp targeting drugs which i'll introduce to you in a minute have been proven effective for migraines in several large randomized controlled trials so there's two types of cgrp targeting drugs there's the monoclonal antibodies and there's the GEPINS, or the cgrp receptor antagonists and there's now several monoclonal antibodies on the market the first being approved in 2018 as erenumab, amovig, and there were several approved in 2018, including galcanezumab, emgality, fremanezumab and a drug approved in 2020 as well, eptinezumab. So there's four monoclonal antibodies that have been approved by the FDA, And then there's this new group of medications, the Geants. and there's now four gephants that are approved. 2019 saw Ubrogepant, ado adogepent, finally approved in 2021. And just this week, a new nasal spray gepent, Xavigepent. Was approved by the FDA for migraines. And so we now have these four GEPINs. And so 2018 was when the first monoclonal antibody was approved. And data started to accumulate that maybe, just maybe, some patients are experiencing hair loss and hair shedding. The clinical trials of these CGRP monoclonal antibodies were generally speaking, not very long. And so the ability to collect data on hair loss was somewhat limited because these trials were over very quickly. But Cessa and colleagues performed a very nice study in 2021 looking into the FDA Adverse Event Reporting System database to look at hair loss from some of these uh, drugs, especially Amovig. And so SESA in 2021 dove into that FDA adverse event reporting system, which is called the FAERS database. There were some 23,000 cases that were looked at of adverse events from these CGRP drugs. 20, uh, 67% were reported by consumers. And of 1,303 unlabeled adverse events, 49 of them had a statistically significant disproportionality compared to other drugs used for migraines like the triptans and others. And the top five adverse events that seemed to be disproportionately represented were blood pressure problems, alopecia, anxiety, influenza-like illness, And depression, but there were others as well. And so, when one looks into these adverse event databases, the key is to try to figure out what side effects are disproportionately represented and unexpected. And so, that particular study in 2021 raised the possibility that alopecia is more common than would be expected in individuals that are using these cgrp monoclonal antibodies and so ruiz and colleagues recently described two patients that reported temporary hair loss with cgrp antibodies and they dove into the fda adverse event reporting system to update hair loss from these drugs and so the first patient they described is a 69-year-old female patient who dis- described alopecia within three months of starting Erenumab, which is AMOvig. And many of these studies and reports describe Erenumab because it was the first drug approved, and so not uncommonly patients have been in the last four five years started on this medication initially before changing to other drugs but in this 69 year old female patient ruiz describes that the patient was switched patient was switched to another cgrp monoclonal antibody and hair loss did not stop the second patient they describe is a 33 year old female who reported hair loss within two weeks of starting erenumab? The patient was switched to galcanezumab, and after a few months, the patient was switched yet again to a new CGRP monoclonal antibody, from anezumab and hair loss resumed again. So here, three CGRP monoclonal antibodies causing hair loss. So this is a, a nice study describing these two patients who had the exact same shedding with addition of other CGRP monoclonal antibodies. When they dove into the FDA adverse event reporting system, they found a number of reports with these CGRP monoclonal antibodies and the geppens now with these adverse event reporting systems one has to be careful That if a drug has been out longer then it's likely there'll be more adverse events in the database these are reporting systems that are voluntary so either patients or practitioners can report to this database so it's completely voluntary and so when you see that there's 1,158 reports with Amovig, and that is twice the number with galconezumab, one cannot conclude that hair loss is twice as common with uh, Amovig compared to other drugs. The reporting is voluntary, and there's a number of factors that go into how commonly drugs are reported. But nevertheless, When Ruiz and colleagues looked at this database, they could see a number of reports of hair loss with these medications. And so these databases are really valuable because they give us a sense of whether a phenomenon is possible. And indeed, hair loss is possible with these CGRP monoclonal antibodies and inhibiting drugs. And taken together, the notion here is that hair loss can occur with these wonderful migraine medications. It seems to be small. The risk of hair loss is small, but certainly more studies are needed to better understand the risk of hair loss. Evers and Wald published a very nice study in the journal called Headache in January 2023 looking at six patients with hair loss from these drugs This was a study from Germany and they described that six patients out of the 279 patients that they had provided care to and treated with monoclonal CGRP antibodies developed hair loss. So that equates to 2.2%. I really appreciated this study because it gives us some numbers to quantify how common hair loss might be. And so... 2.2 2.2 is a low percentage of patients. Nevertheless, it's, it, it is a phenomenon that may occur. All patients in this study were female with chronic migraine. Age ranges from 40 to 62. And patients had hair loss after using a CGRP monoclonal antibody. Hair loss from iron deficiency, thyroid problems was ruled out and so it was felt that the hair loss was truly from the drug all patients started erenumab five of the patients had shedding and one patient had hair loss it wasn't really a shedding phenomenon but there were thinning areas on the scalp hair loss started one week to four weeks after starting cgrp monoclonal antibodies and then the patients were switched to another monoclonal antibody So I think this is really nice. Drug-related hair shedding is a fascinating subject. And telogen effluvium and hair loss doesn't always occur two to three months after starting the drug. It can start within weeks. And here, hair loss from this monoclonal antibody was starting one to four weeks after starting the drug. So all six of these patients with shedding were switched to another drug. In four of those patients, that switch did it in other words the shedding stopped they finally were put on a cgrp monoclonal antibody which could potentially help them and the shedding stopped what about the other two patients well in one patient the shedding just continued and they decided to stop treatment altogether in the other patient there was shedding with the second drug and so they switched to a third drug and shedding finally stopped so, this is a nice study which differs from Ruiz. Ruiz and colleagues had two patients that started Amovig, had shedding, switched to another drug, still had shedding, suggesting that it's a class effect. Here, Evers and Wald describe six patients, five of which eventually found a CGRP monoclonal antibody that did not cause shedding. Suggesting it's not a simple class effect, that if you have a patient with shedding from a CGRP monoclonal antibody, keep trying. These drugs can be revolutionary for many patients with difficult-to-treat migraine, so you don't need to give up. You can switch drugs, and some patients may respond. And if the second switch doesn't work, try a third. So I think this is a helpful study because it reminds us to keep going and don't give up. And so these are important studies because hair loss from CGRP monoclonal antibodies will be the source of patient concerns that show up in our offices. I think this isn't well known, and I think that many a times the connection is not drawn. We live in a world now where hair may be shedding from a variety of reasons. But I think we have to be aware of this. Why does this occur? Well, it's not clear. It's thought, perhaps, that inhibition of CGRP alters the immune system. Reduction in CGRP levels has been described in frontal fibrosing, alopecia, and lichen planopilaris. So, inhibition of CGRP has been described in some hair loss models. And probably the most important mechanism is that inhibition of CGRP may reduce the length of antigen phase. And whenever you reduce the length of antigen phase, you get shedding. It's not clear, and perhaps there's a true mechanism of telogen effluvium, but the key message here is that there are previous studies that describe changes in the immune system and changes in hair cycle dynamics with inhibition of CGRP. It's important to be aware of these CGRP monoclonal antibodies. It's important to be aware of these GEPINs. And it's important to be aware of this brand new gepent that was just approved March 10th, 2023, zavagepent, a nasal spray for the treatment of acute migraine with or without aura. It's the first nasal spray that was approved, and they predict that it'll be available in pharmacies in the summer of 2023. So we have a number of CGRP-inhibiting medications for the treatment of migraine I think it's important for us to all be aware of this. The small, perhaps 2.2%, but small chance of hair shedding. And when you see patients with hair loss from these drugs, it makes sense to try another CGRP-inhibiting drug. So we move now to a study of low-dose oral minoxidil in traction alopecia, We'll move away from telogen effluvium and talk about traction alopecia, and then we'll come to a study of tinea capitis, and that'll do it for this week. So we'll talk here about low-dose oral minoxidil and the treatment of traction alopecia, a study by AWOD and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. Oral minoxidil, you are well aware, is used for many different hair loss conditions. It's used in androgenetic hair loss, It's used in alopecia areata, chronic telogen effluvium, chemotherapy. We talked last week on the Evidence-Based Hair podcast, episode 3 of the use of oral minoxidil in post-chemotherapy-induced alopecia. It's It's used in scarring alopecia. It's used in loose antigen syndrome. Dr. Beach published a nice study in 2018 describing the use of oral minoxidil in several different hair loss conditions androgenetic hair loss and traction there was four patients in that study who started oral minoxidil for traction alopecia three patients continued the use of 1.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil with good effect one patient had an aversion to using oral minoxidil and stopped Kim and Craiglow published a nice study in 2022 that we reviewed on prior episodes of the Evidence Based Hair podcast. Kim and Craiglow described a 31 year old female with traction alopecia, previously treated with topical minoxidil and topical steroids without any improvement. The patient started 1.25 milligrams of oral minoxidil along with topical steroids. After six months, The patient was switched to 1.25 milligrams twice daily and continued and continued her use of chemical relaxers during this time and had a very nice response with 1.25 milligrams twice daily. And this was published in JAD Case Reports. A really nice study showing us that Oral minoxidil can have some pretty profound effects in some patients, and Kim and Craiglow described the pretty good tolerance of 1.25 milligrams twice daily. There was some mild hypertrichosis, but otherwise well-tolerated. So here we have Awad and colleagues publishing in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology, and Awad and colleagues set out to retrospectively review the records of patients' With traction alopecia, 12 years of age or older, who had been treated with low dose oral minoxidil for six months or more. They used the marginal traction alopecia severity scale, which is a scoring system which scores patients from 0 to 18, with 18 being maximal hair loss. It gives a score of 9 for the front and 9 for the back. There are three areas in the front, three areas in the back, and a score of three is given for each of those areas, totaling 18 total. And so with the 58 patients in this study, 57 were female, one was male, the mean age of onset of traction alopecia was 32 years, and patients had traction alopecia for a mean duration of 6.4 years. What was interesting in this study is that 75% of patients were white, 10% were black, 8.6 were middle eastern, 3% were south asian and about 2% were east and southeast asian. I think that's important to understand those demographics as we come to understand the benefits of oral minoxidil in this study. Patients mostly had frontal and temporal traction alopecia, had hair loss in the frontal zones, 65% in the temporal zones. The mean starting dose was 0.75 milligrams, and this was titrated upwards until good growth was seen or acceptable growth was seen, and the mean final dose was 2.5 milligrams. So I think that's really important to understand. That's the mean final dose. So some patients would have less and some patients would have more. These patients are, for the most part, female patients, and a mean final dose of 2.5 milligrams is a pretty high dose. Many patients that I see do really well on 1.25 milligrams, 1.875 milligrams. As the dose is pushed, in my practice, a large proportion of patients do get swelling in the feet and swelling around the eyes and hypertrichosis. And so 2.5 is pretty high dose, and I think we just need to be aware of that. But oral minoxidil helped traction alopecia, and the mean score decreased from 5.1 to 3.6. And these were largely patients with frontal-type traction alopecia. So an improvement in scores for traction alopecia with the use of low-dose oral minoxidil had hypertrichosis as side effects. 5.2% had headaches. And none of the patients needed to stop treatment. This is another nice study. Large study, 58 patients. So we are moving from some case report type studies of oral minoxidil. Four patients in Dr. Beach's study. The Kim and Craiglow case report of one patient in 2022. To here... 58 patients. This was a study mainly of traction alopecia in white women. 75% were white, 10% were black. I think we need to be aware of that because some of the mechanisms acting on different hair types could be relevant as we understand traction alopecia. The authors did report that in those patients, those 10% of patients that had afro-textured hair, that a good response was also found with the use of oral minoxidil. This was also a study of patients with fairly long-standing traction alopecia. 6.4 years was the mean duration of traction alopecia. So it was a mild improvement in hair with the use of fairly high doses of oral minoxidil. I think this study reminds us that long-standing traction alopecia is not easy to treat. There was an improvement in the traction alopecia severity score. It would be nice to get a sense of what proportion of patients Felt this was a good result. These were 58 patients. Was it 50 of 58 patients that were wowed by the result? Was it 20 of 58 patients? When you sit in the office and you say to patients, you have traction alopecia, we're going to start oral minoxidil, one of the things patients want to know is how likely is it to help? And how likely am I going to be satisfied? And so if we can say 10% of patients were really, really happy, that is going to be a a big difference than if we say 80% of patients are really happy with their results. So I think those kind of patient evaluations are really important in these kind of studies. The Kim and Craiglow study shows this wonderful result with oral minoxidil. Not all patients get that kind of wow result. It depends on the duration of hair loss the severity of hair loss the compliance and a whole bunch of other factors the mean dose here was 0.75 milligrams to start but the mean final dose was 2.5 milligrams which as i mentioned is pretty high not all patients can tolerate that kind of a dose and so in my practice i would say maybe 20 percent of females are on 2.5 2.5 milligrams. A large proportion of patients are on 1.25, 0.625, 1.875. I do see a large proportion of patients with swelling in the feet, excessive hair growth they don't like, as well as other symptoms, swelling around the eyes, with 1.875 and 2.5. And so I'm pretty comfortable with 1.25 and below. When we go beyond that, I'm a little bit on the ball in terms of monitoring for side effects. Now, many patients just do great. So there's lots of patients in my practice on 2.5 that are doing just fine. But I think we have to be aware that not everyone tolerates 2.5. And so I think this is a very nice study in terms of how they titrate upwards. Patients have been followed in this study for quite a long time, close to two years. And so this is a a well-conducted study of traction alopecia in largely white women with concerns about traction alopecia. The key question in my mind is what happens when oral minoxidil is stopped. I don't think we really understand what happens in highly refractory traction alopecia that's long-standing when we stop oral minoxidil. The authors state in their paper that it's likely that improvements would be maintained upon cessation of therapy, provided hairstyles were avoided that are tight. I think that's a big leap in interpretation. I think long-standing traction alopecia has had, in this case, mean duration of six years. That's almost 2,000 days of these hair follicles to develop their own plan for how they want to grow. And I do have some concerns that in many patients with long-standing traction alopecia, it may not be possible to stop. I don't think we have any good studies that really guide us about stopping oral minoxidil in these types of refractory traction alopecia cases. There could be some degree of minoxidil dependence in these tiny vellus hairs that characterize traction alopecia. Remember, what happens in long-standing traction alopecia is you get hair breakage, you get inflammation around hairs, and you get a conversion to thin vellus hairs. Second, in this particular study, probably 15% of women would have some degree of androgenetic hair loss. And what happens in patients when you stop oral minoxidil if they have androgenetic hair loss is you get shedding. The hairs that are thinning from androgenetic hair loss that perhaps you didn't even know they had androgenetic hair loss, those hairs start complaining. And protesting that oral minoxidil has been stopped and so the patient gets shedding and so sometimes what happens is you get this improvement with traction alopecia you stop patients start shedding and the clinician wonders why is the patient shedding maybe they have a telogen effluvium from low iron you test the ferritin it's 22 you feel oh could be telogen effluvium from low iron why don't you take some iron It's not telogen effluvium from low iron. It's it's telogen effluvium from stopping oral minoxidil. It's telogen effluvium from an acceleration of androgenetic hair loss that has now taken place. The patient has been on oral minoxidil for two years. They're 32 years old. The genes for androgenetic hair loss are chugging along, and their hairs want oral minoxidil, and we cannot stop. So I think we need better studies to really understand whether or not we can stop and how often we can stop and what are the factors that allow us to stop oral minoxidil in patients with long-standing traction alopecia. I don't think it's as easy to do as uh, one might think. Finally, we look at a really nice study by Gold and colleagues in the Journal of the American Academy of Dermatology. The title says it all. Inadequate Diagnostic Testing and Systemic... Antifungal prescribing for tinea capitis in an observational cohort study of 3.9 million children. So, tinea capitis is a fungal infection of the hair. It's more common in children than in adults. And one of the most important concepts is it requires oral antifungal treatment rather than topical. So, when you have children with tinea capitis, don't use antifungal creams, don't use ketoconazole shampoo. Sure, those can help a little bit in terms of reducing spore number, and they can help members of the family that are possible to prevent them from being affected. But we don't use antifungal shampoos and antifungal creams to treat tinea capitis. We use pills. And if you don't treat tinea capitis properly, you can get persistence of infections. You can get spread to others, other members of the family, other members of the classroom, other friends. And you can potentially get permanent hair loss. If Tinea capitis goes on long enough, you can get permanent hair loss. And that can sometimes be like a scarring alopecia. There's different species that cause Tinea capitis. Microsporum canis is the most common agent in Europe. t tonsurans, trichophyton tonsurans, is the most common agent identified in North America. And over time... Species are changing, and so it's helpful for us all to follow cultures to better understand how the epidemiology changes over time, because more and more anthropophilic species, like trichophyton, are being identified in Europe, for example, over time. Why do children become affected more with Tinea capitis than adults? Well, it's thought that the scalps of children have a lower concentration of Fungistatic fatty acids, fatty acids that can kill fungi. And then as puberty approaches, the scalp accumulates more and more fungistatic fatty acids that can kill fungi. There's different groups of fungi. There's anthropophilic, zoophilic, and geophilic. And these are traditionally groups of dermatophytes that can be passed human to human anthropophilic or from animal to human like your dog like your guinea pig we've talked about this on prior episodes guinea pigs are a wonderful source of tinea capitis those are zoophilic sources and then geophilic sources from the soil And so there's many different types of organisms that can cause tinea capitis and it's important for us to understand this how it changes over time certain drugs work better on certain types of tinea capitis than others so the authors here in gold et al 2023 set out to evaluate a large database of children and adolescents they used a commercial database called the Merative market scan commercial database to calculate the incidence of tinea capitis according to age and better understand how children were treated there's 3.9 million patients in this database and the one-year incidence of tinea capitis per 10,000 person years was 16.3 the incidence of tinea capitis was highest in five-year-olds and the incidence in five-year-olds was about six times higher than in a 17-year-old it was higher in males than females about twice as high in males as in females and it differed across the u.s in geography it was higher in southern residents compared to north and northeastern residents pediatricians were making most of the diagnoses of tinea capitis 54.6 percent of the diagnoses were from pediatricians followed by dermatologists followed by family practitioners there was two big concerns in this study that gold and colleagues raised the first was that there was not enough patients that were having confirmatory testing and the second concern was that not enough patients were being put on oral treatments so let's let's look at these in turn so the first was that not enough confirmatory testing was being done and most children didn't have confirmatory testing in other words you scrape the scalp you send it off for fungal culture confirmatory testing was done in 21.9 percent of patients in this 3.9 million child and adolescent database. Fungal culture was done in 17.8% of patients and direct microscopy in 10%. And despite oral antifungals being the mainstay of treatment, 40% of children in this study were not put on oral antifungals. 60% were. The most common oral antifungal here in this U.S. study was griziofulvin. Griziofulvin's not as commonly available in other countries, but in the U.S. it is. And that was followed by terbinafine in 5.5% of children and adolescents, followed by fluconazole in 3.3%, and rarely, 0.1%, received itraconazole. But only 60% of Pediatric patients were put on oral antifungals. 14% were prescribed a topical antifungal, and topical antifungals were more often prescribed by family practitioners compared to dermatologists or pediatricians. But a large percentage of pediatricians and, and dermatologists were giving topical antifungals. And that's really important for us to be aware of. It is a fundamental principle of dermatology training that oral antifungals are the mainstay of treatment for tinea capitis and so one needs to better understand why a large percentage of dermatologists chose to use topical over oral is it lack of knowledge is it fear of oral antifungals and side effects is it a an experience with certain protocols for topicals that, in their experience, it works? I don't think we understand, but I think the data to date supports the notion that oral antifungals are the mainstay of treatment. And so this is a valuable study which highlights some gaps. And these are significant gaps. Only 20% of patients are getting confirmatory testing. And so a large proportion of clinicians look at the scalp and say, this is tinea capitis, treat it. It's valuable to know the species. Species are changing over time, whether anthropophilic or zoophilic or geophilic. Second, treatments are slightly different, whether it's amcanus, for example, or tonsurans. And one of the things that's so helpful in treating tinea capitis is to scrape the scalp again after a treatment course is done to see if there's truly been mycologic cure there's also some evidence that resistance to some drugs is emerging for tinea capitis in some parts of the world and so i think if we're going to stay atop of the epidemiology of tinea capitis these fungal dermatophytes are big problems around the planet i think it's really important that we we do this epidemiology to understand these organisms because they're changing but there's a lack of knowledge or some sort of a gap with the prescription of oral antifungals 40% of pediatric patients are not receiving the appropriate care 38.8% of patients are not receiving appropriate care and because tinea capitis can lead to a scarring alopecia and permanent hair loss Because this is contagious and other children in the family can be affected, other school children can be affected, parents can be affected, grandparents can be affected. I think it's really important that we treat tinea capitis properly. So that brings us to the end of season four, episode number four of the Evidence-Based Hair podcast. I want to thank you so much for joining me today. We've talked about a number of really interesting studies We've talked about the histology of COVID-associated telogen effluvium, this interesting study by and colleagues in the JEADV of four patients suggesting that there's thickened nerves and atrophy of hairs and fibrosis that's occurring in some patients. So I think we need to better understand this, and I think we need to keep an open mind that maybe not all patients resolve perfectly after COVID-related hair loss. So we need to understand this more. A nice study from Saudi Arabia suggests that 28% of patients have shedding after vaccines. I think we need to understand this better. I think we need to understand this across different patient groups and study this rigorously. I certainly believe that COVID-related hair loss and COVID-vaccine-related hair loss is very much with us. And it complicates the clinical pictures that we see. We have patients with scarring alopecia that are shedding. Is it the scarring alopecia? Is it the vaccines? Is it the COVID? Sometimes we cannot prove it. But I think we have to keep an open mind. A study from Turkey suggests that in about a quarter of patients, hair issues are still going on nine months after COVID infection. So I think we have to keep an open mind that maybe COVID-related hair loss doesn't come to a conclusion at Six to nine months, the curtain closes. That's done. That shedding is done. Maybe it doesn't respond like dengue and influenza and other infections that we know well. Certainly COVID has surprised us in many ways in it's multi-organ effects. So let's keep an open mind and study it. Maybe it does have some longer sequelae in some patients. I certainly think it does. And I think we need more study. A nice study by Saber and colleagues looked at Capillary ectasia. This is in the Journal of Cosmetic Dermatology. It seems that dilated blood vessels are seen in many organs after COVID infection, and the authors propose that these dilated blood vessels, what I would call arborizing blood vessels, or what they call capillary ectasia, is a feature of COVID 19 infection. And I think we need to study this more, but keep it in mind. It may be a helpful sign that warrants further study. I reviewed two nice studies of CGRP monoclonal antibodies. I think this is a really important area for us to understand. These CGRP monoclonal antibodies and inhibitors, and now these nasal sprays, these changed people's lives. Many, many years ago, many decades ago now, when the triptans came out, they played a big, big role, and they still play a big, big role in helping migraine headaches and improving lives of people with migraine headaches. But there's a lot of people who still have headaches despite use of triptans and other headache medications. And these CGRP monoclonal antibodies have changed people's lives dramatically. And patients have shared with me just how revolutionary these drugs have been. But they may cause hair loss. And it's not clear the exact incidence. One study by Evers and Wald suggests that Maybe 2.2% of their patients had hair shedding or hair loss from these CGRP monoclonal antibodies. The study from Ruiz described two patients with hair shedding from these CGRP monoclonal antibodies. They made a switch to another drug. Shedding still happened. But when Evers and Wald made a switch, some patients finally stopped their shedding. And one patient went to another drug, finally stopped the shedding after a third drug was introduced. And so it's reasonable for us to switch CGRP monoclonal antibodies. There's about four that have been FDA approved and then four of these other inhibitors that are non-monoclonal antibodies that have been approved. So certainly a large group of drugs to pull from for treating refractory migraine. We talked about a nice study of low-dose oral minoxidil in traction alopecia, largely a study in white women, a study of 58 patients by Awad and colleagues, And the authors show that frontal traction alopecia and temporal traction alopecia improved with low-dose oral minoxidil at reasonably high dose in women. The mean dose was 2.5 milligrams in the end. I think the outstanding question is, can we stop the drug? I don't think we know. I don't think the studies have been done to really convince us. When you have traction alopecia that's been around six years, that's a long time for these hairs to be fussy about what drugs they like and what drugs they don't like. I'm not completely convinced that we can stop oral minoxidil in patients that have nice results. So we need more studies. Maybe we can in some, maybe we can't in others. Maybe we can with traction alopecia from a braid, weave cornrow. Maybe we can't from traction alopecia from a tight ponytail. I think we need these studies. Traction alopecia is a fascinating subject area which is really poorly studied Hair type certainly matters. Traction alopecia occurring in black women is not identical to traction alopecia occurring in white women. The concept is similar, but hair follicles are different, shape is different, the inflammation can be different. And I think this is really relevant, and I think we need to continue to study this area. Traction alopecia is very much a neglected area, and we need more good studies. And I congratulate these authors for diving into this important area in a large study of 58 patients thank you for this study and we talked about tinea capitis gold et al of this massive study of 3.9 million children in these large databases 20% of children are only getting good workups and 80% are not and 60% of children and adolescents are being put on the right treatment are not. So there's important gaps in knowledge and how tinea capitis is managed. And I think we need to understand why these gaps exist. Dermatologists would not do well in their training examinations if they put a pediatric patient on a topical antifungal. But yet many dermatologists in this study put their patient on topical antifungals. Why is this? Is it lack of knowledge? I don't think so. Of course it could be. But there may be other reasons that need to be explored, and I think it's important we do understand this. For other practitioners and some dermatologists, absolutely, it it may be lack of knowledge, but we need to understand this better because there are many children around the world who have scarring alopecia from tinea capitis, and um, these are large patches of, of scarring alopecia that very much mimic alopecia or pseudopalade, and children had tinea capitis when they were five ten and um, they have these gaps of hair all throughout their scalp and transplant is an option excision is an option but the better option would have been to treat aggressively culture at first treat aggressively and reculture that would have been the best plan to prevent the negative sequelae of tinea capitis in children. That's it for this week. I want to thank you so much for joining me. Next week, we're back. It's the third Monday of the month of March. And that's a Monday where we talk about scarring alopecia. And I'll be talking about a number of fascinating studies in scarring alopecia that have been published in the last month or two. I hope you'll join me. But thanks so much for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you again. Bye for now.